Hey, my name is Akash Thakar, and this is Sound Business. This is the podcast where we dive into the mindsets and methods of some of the top musicians, sound designers, or audio creators in the world. We're going to interview everyone from plugin makers, performing musicians, video game composers, and everything in between, and learn how they run a successful business and how they're making a killer living in the worlds of music and sound. My hope with this podcast is that you can be exposed to the many myriad different ways there are to make a killer living in the worlds of music and sound, and help you realize that there's no one right way to get to the top. And with that, let's get into the episode. Our guest today is Lena Rain. Lena Rain is an incredible composer who's worked on projects like Celeste, Guild Wars 2, Minecraft, Deltarune Chapter 2, Chicory, A Colorful Tale, Steven Universe the Movie, and so many others. In this episode, Lena and I talk about how long it really takes to get a creative career off the ground, how to keep creating even when we aren't seeing any results, and why it's a good idea to keep putting ourselves out there even when it seems like no one wants to hire us or there are no jobs open for us audio people. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Lena Rain. Beautiful. Okay, so the first question I have for you is we did the same thing growing up where we would take like boom boxes or tape machines and record music off of the TV. I did that with Street Fighter oh, yeah, and Mega totally. Man all the time and i know you did that too which is adorable and the best and i'm curious obviously that influenced what you're doing nowadays of making video game music right. all the time i'm curious if there's anything else you did when you were little or in college or anywhere in your career that you didn't know would inform what you're doing now but turned out it did yeah i mean a lot of it was kind of just even entertaining the idea of the possibility of making games because a lot of people, you know, they'll, they'll grow up just kind of like, oh, games exist, you know, and they just kind of play them, right? But like my friends and I, we would basically like, you know, hang out at each other's houses and, and all, our parents all had kind of different rules for like screen time and all that stuff. So if we were at one one friend's house and they'd be like, okay, well, you only have this amount of time to play video games and <laughs> you need to do something else now, <laughs> we would go to like the dining room table or whatever and start sketching out like level designs and like enemy designs and stuff we would start like coming up with our own like game designs because we were just so into the games that we were playing that we were just really inspired to just like make stuff and so that that kind of like got my my head geared around the possibility of actually making games or contributing to games which i think was a huge thing growing up the other thing i think was when i was in high school i got a chance to you know just, i was writing music for like general midi and stuff and then also i was experimenting with rpg maker 2000 because you know i was obviously a huge fan of, of jrpgs when i was growing up and so you know i found a copy of rpg maker for my pc and was just kind of messing around with like designing towns and like scripting things like day night cycles and so i was writing midi music that would be dynamically adapting using the scripting language in rpg maker to like change you know to different times of day and stuff so like my brain was already there for like dynamic music like even in like <laughs> the early 2000s <laughs> i was already kind of like realizing like you could do so many cool things with with adaptive music and games well before i even like knew that i wanted to do that for a living very nice yeah so it informed a lot more than maybe you knew at the time <laughs> for sure but now you have the ear for it it's so cool it's yeah, super super yeah. cool and when you were first starting out like let's say you just graduated from cornish 
what were you kind of thinking yourself as? Were you saying, oh, I'm a video game composer? Because I know a lot of people go to Cornish or Berkeley or things like that. say like, I'm a jazz person or I'm a classical person or things like that. Did you have a musical career identity when you graduated? Or was it just I'm a musician or something more general? It was very much video games focused, much to my professor's (laughs) frustration, I think. (laughs) Um, At the time, I was very much trying my best to learn how to write for sampled instruments as well as live instruments and like learning MIDI and all this stuff. And, And no one was really equipped to teach the kind of things that I needed to know. And so I was kind of like supplementing my education with like joining groups online and like message boards and stuff and like trying to figure out like (laughs) the kind of stuff that I actually needed for my career versus the actual compositional knowledge that I was Mm -hmm. learning in college. And I was one of the, the only people I think in my college that was really focused on on games as a potential endpoint <laughs> after college. Everyone else was kind of like singer-songwriter or like classical composer or, you know, jazz composer. And like we had a class in my last year of like how to write a grant, how to uh. <laughs> how to potentially become like a in-house composer at an orchestra or something, mm. artist in residence. <laughs> All these things that were like theoretically kind of interesting but like extremely not what I was aiming for and so a lot of my my compositions were kind of you know focused around scoring imaginary things that didn't really exist Mm. (laughs) and like you know my junior recital was was basically like an entire like story just through both performance and like sound design sort of pastiche kind of stuff that I put together with recordings. So it was like, I did a lot of like recording out in nature and like recording like bird sounds and like streams and stuff and kind of piecing together all of these ambiences that were like interspersed between the live pieces. So I was very much like trying to like tell this story of a space, you know, and kind of like doing all these things within the confines of the means of approval that I had from the professors mm-hmm. there, <laughs> there of like, you know, putting on performance art that is a sort of sneaky disguised means <laughs> of leading towards interactive game stuff. Nice. Yeah. And I think those those confines that you've been putting on yourself probably informed when clients say, oh, okay, can you do X, Y, Z? And you're like, oh, yeah, that's I can I can play within these this like sandbox you've made for me no problem because that's so much of the client work right yeah totally yeah it's it's amazing how you unknowingly kind of set yourself up super well for what you're doing I love it right <laughs> so when you were you know out there you're in the real world yeah and maybe you were like okay let's make this video game thing work I don't really know any composers very few who graduated or started and like work is coming in nonstop, no problem like that is not <laughs> common I don't think that was the case for you right like no. it, was, it took a while for like things to really get going so during that dip during that kind of downtime when you know maybe the gigs weren't coming in or they weren't paying very much or things like that did it get to you was it easy for you to kind of hang back and know that your time was coming or was it kind of worrying what was where was your head at back then my head at the time was kind of on the verge of giving up <laughs> in terms of just like, you know, being a professional composer. I I mean I didn't I didn't give up composing, but I did kind of take my career in a different route because I just wasn't getting the gigs that I wanted. I wasn't really finding the collaborations that really spoke to me. I, I just wasn't getting accepted, you know, past like the first, you know, round of of demos or whatever. So there was a lot of kind of like 
I need to actually make money so that I can like live. <laughs> so, you know, cause I, I was still like after college, I was still living with my, my parents and I really wanted to have my own place and, you know, have a space to actually like build the rest of my life from. And I had the financial support of my parents, like when I was growing up, but once I graduated college, like that was it, like college was sort of the last thing that they could really afford for me, you know, and, and it was all loans and all that stuff. So it was like, you know, the debt's piling up. I need to make money. I need to, to do something that I know is going to be a steady flow of income. And so I didn't have anything to fall back on hmm. and I needed something to fall back on. So that's that was kind of my, my mindset that I went into doing QA jobs and eventually a, a design job at ArenaNet. And it was all kind of just like this winding path of you know meeting people and finding job opportunities through different means and just kind of applying for the stuff that I felt like I was possibly going to be good at. And, you know, kind of found my way because <laughs> I didn't really lose sight of the goal, but I was still kind of feeling my way out, like job by job, kind of figuring out how I was going to get there. So, yeah, it was definitely a thing of continuing to, to work on my composition in the back of my mind, but I was also kind of focusing on like, what are the other things that I could do? You know, I could do design, I can do writing, I can do all these things. And so I tried to sort of apply myself to those things and then eventually, you know, wound back up in composition once, <laughs> once everything kind of like came for a full circle in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like, how did you learn those other kind of ancillary skills of, you know, design or writing or, and I believe you did QA as well, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Just, you know, I, I learn a lot of things just by doing. And so I'll just do something a lot and learn by example, by picking things apart. Um, I think that's probably why I was really adept at, at getting into QA is because like I could look at something and figure out what made it tick and kind of pick it apart and sort out like how a bug was happening, you know? And so by looking at how bugs were happening, I was also learning how things were made. And so when I got into like my QA job at ArenaNet, it was an in-house job. And so I was able to like go into the designer tools and like see, okay, maybe, you know, I can look at the actual scripting for this thing that's happening and I can be like, okay, this is where I went wrong. And I can learn all of those things of like, you know, the mistakes that other people were making, you know, and trying to like learn how to reverse engineer those things to sort of make them. And so in my off time, uh, when I was working QA, like I, I went at the design tools and started like making my own stuff to just kind of be like, well, you know, why don't I try, you know, <laughs> why don't mm -hmm. I try to do this? And so when a position opened for me to apply to, like I brought all of those skills that I was teaching myself essentially to the application and, and was able to, to get the job. I think discovering general MIDI was an incredible thing for me when I was getting into music because it wasn't just a recording, right? You know, it was mm -hmm. the data that was creating the music. And so I could load that up into my notation program and I could see all the different parts and I could pick it apart and I could be like, ah, the bass line's doing this, the chords are doing this. And I could see all the different parts that were making the MIDI happen, you know, all those things like looking into the source. <laughs> <laughs> essentially for for music and and picking it apart like that's just kind of how i learn just doing lots of that <laughs> for everything that i came across i like that i think the mindset of why don't i why don't i do it or why don't i right. try this is huge <laughs> it's so huge for so many people in any creative sphere of like why don't I, well, let me just try it that's, why don't I that's do so it? massive yeah yeah and that was that was very much the mindset in high school too of like <laughs> i was kind of fed up with like 
popular music. And I was just like, why don't I just make music that I can want to listen to? So. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I'm seeing a through line throughout your entire life. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is great. It's awesome. It's awesome. And it's, it's, uh, there is a kind of necessary self-motivation needed for any creative career. You kind of have to push yourself because it's, it's different than any other career. You can go to accounting school and they will tell you exactly what to do and then you'll be an accountant. But for us, radically different. So I'm curious for you, is there, was there anything like a decision you made throughout that rise up or even recently where you said, oh, this was a good decision I made. Like, I'm glad I did this thing so that it set me up for the rest of it. Sure. I think like two major things kind of, kind of shaped that. Like, A, I'm really glad that I took the design position at ArenaNet because that got me in the door to actually like have the possibility of writing music for the game and actually having a credit like that, like getting in there, like really kind of helped me present myself in the world as a professional composer and be like, look, I've done this. So, you know, I can do other things too. And then the other thing I think that was really important for me was was going freelance because I was kind of in that that salaried position for a while of, you know, going from ArenaNet and the second like big company that I, I went to work for was was Ubisoft in, in Montreal. And so I was, you know, a salaried level designer there. And, you know, I'm kind of glad that I took that position because it gave me a chance to see what I didn't want to do. And it was very much not doing level design. (laughs) (laughs) I'm proud of the little amount of work that I was able to do when I was there, but it was very much not a thing that I was like looking back on and being like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my career. Like Mm -hmm. I was just like, I don't really want to construct layouts for for quests for for the rest of, of my career. And and so I was already working on Celeste just kind of in my my spare time. And so, you know, the decision to go freelance and kind of finish up the game full time, obviously, like that paid off because the game exploded and I've been able to just have a constant stream of work since then. That's awesome. Yeah. And what was the kind of impetus that made you say, okay, time to go freelance? Was it because Celeste was kind of building in popularity or was it something else where you're just like, I can't take this anymore? Where was that line when you decided to go freelance? It was it was a whole big confluence of things. I'd been at the Ubisoft job for, for about a year at that point. It was kind of starting to wrap up on production, and I very much needed to look at, like, if I was going to continue on at the studio, it was like they would have put me on another project and, and all this, this other stuff. Like It was kind of like the perfect spot to jump off the train, <laughs> if that makes sense. And... I don't know. I, I think I just had a, a good feeling about Celeste. We didn't really know that it was going to be a hit until it came out, but it was a period of time in my life where I needed to do something to sort of make a drastic change there. And so moving back to Seattle and, and going freelance, like that was sort of the big change that, that I needed to make happen at the time. And so, you know, I did a lot of research of like figuring out like, okay, how do I soften this blow if it doesn't work out as much as I can? And so, like, I started a Patreon. I got like an initial like flow of money from from that, and like doing stuff for for my patrons there. I even started talking with you know ArenaNet folks again to be like, hey, if <laughs> if this freelance thing doesn't work out, like, do I still have a spot there that I could you know potentially like work 
even if it's going back to doing design or like, you know, if it's doing music part-time, whatever it is, like just kind of looking into those options of like, you know, if this doesn't work out, like, where can I go? <laughs> that's smart. I think that's really smart. You, you laid a kind of foundation and you had a, a, a bit of a cushion in just in case, which I think is something that a lot of freelancers should be thinking about if they're just about to break out. The main thing that was really important for me to feel comfortable doing that is that thankfully, like working at ArenaNet and having the structure that they had for like benefits and everything, I think really helped a lot. You know, I got healthcare through my salary job there. They did profit sharing. So like when we released Guild Wars 2, like we got a significant chunk of change, you know, to put in the bank from that. You know, it wasn't like stock options or any of those things that can be kind of like, <laughs> ooh, this is actually gonna work out, you know, that sort of stuff. Like it was just straight up profit sharing. Right. So, you know, when we did well, you know, we benefited from that for the year. And so I was able to pay off my student debts using that. I was able to just kind of have a cushion, you know, there to to sustain me. And so I was, you know, living off of that for a little bit when I moved back to Seattle. But then once, you know, I started getting income again through my jobs, I was like, okay, well, this can actually be sustainable. Like I don't, you know, thankfully I had that there um, to to use if I needed it. Nice, nice. And you let's talk about location a bit because you mentioned, you know, going to Montreal. And I know you traveled around and worked kind of wherever you are. I know a lot of creative people tend to need to be in mm. a certain space before they can do stuff, even though we're basically exclusively remote. But you seem like that you can handle working from anywhere. So how do you handle that? Do you have like rituals in place when you're in a new space? Do you just sit down and write? Is that does it feel weird to not be at like quote unquote home when you're writing? It's kind of shifted over the years a little bit. Like I've I've kind of established like an actual studio space now with like, you know, COVID and all these things kind of like forcing isolation and, and needing to be inside. So I was like, well, why not? Like I'll build up an actual real studio with with a little bit more hardware than I had initially. I still don't have the space for like a full like actual studio that's in a real room. I'm just, you know, in the living room. But, you know, it's still it's still more than I had before because like in late 2018 through 2019 or so, I was basically working off of like either a tiny computer, like a NUC sort of like Intel thing, or a laptop. And that was that was kind of my studio. Like I could, I really wanted to make a point of like a low footprint studio that I could take wherever. And that's what enabled me to kind of like work half from Japan and half from Seattle in 2019 because my my now wife like she was living in Osaka in Japan and so I was able to live there with her you know on my traveler's visa when I could and then come back here to Seattle and still like have my studio space which was a laptop and like you know, audio interface and headphones and stuff and so it's like you know I, I could work wherever I wherever I wanted to go you know as long as I could set up you know the laptop and everything which, you know, which meant, you know, there were some limitations, right? Like I'm working off of like a very tiny, like portable keyboard. I don't have like full monitors set up. I don't have like any like offboard hardware. But, you know, it still allowed me to, to have that freedom, which was really nice. But now that I'm you know, sort of in this space, you know, for, for the long haul, you know, it's kind of like I've got, you know, my really nice like 88 key keyboard that I can actually like feel like I'm really playing an instrument <laughs> rather than like a little like chiclet key, like MIDI input sort of thing. I've got, uh, you know, two monitors. <laughs> it's got, you know, some increased real estate there for screen, for screen space. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, eventually like I'd love to be able to expand out and like have like real 
outboard hardware stuff and like, you know, get a little bit more like analog synths hooked up and all that stuff to, to have like a real like recording space on top of just like my digital workspace. But, you know, I, I've kind of always worked digitally. So that's my studio, you know, as long as I've got a DAW and I've got my VSTs and stuff like I'm comfy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And speaking of that, that DAW, when you open up a new project and the blank screen is staring at you, you know, like <laughs> writers deal with the equivalent when they're just seeing a blank page and we just have a blank DAW. Do you have any sorts of ways of getting through that? Do you have any kind of apprehension or fear when you're first starting a thing? Or is it just easy? Do you start writing? How do you kind of work with that? I think I need to like start with something, whether it's something that I've come up with in my head or recorded like me singing or whatever, like Mm -hmm. out away from the keyboard and away from the computer, like starting something like a melody or a chord progression or something that I've kind of got bubbling around in my head, like that immediately starts me with something so that I'm not just sitting down and being like, well, what am I going to write today? You know, I've got something that's, that I'm already kind of like getting stuck in my head, so to speak. And then the other option is if I've got like a sound that I want to explore, like I'll load up either a synth or, or you know, a sampler or, or whatever it is, some, something to kind of like start riffing off of. And like I'll load up a patch or something and just kind of start playing around with it on the keyboard and like coming up with textures or, or chords or whatever it is, just to kind of like explore like the possibilities of, of where a piece could go. It's it's hard for me to kind of out of nowhere, just like, okay, what what am I what am I gonna write <laughs> right now? It's always gotta be like objective driven in some way. Mm. Yeah, that's smart. Yeah, that makes sense. Otherwise, you know, you don't have those barriers in place to lead you down a path. Yeah, I need some restrictions before I can <laughs> before I can start figuring out, you know, narrowing down what the possibilities are. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, when you first started, I'm sure it was different, like the the practice of doing this. So when you were in, let's say in college, what did the practice process look like to you? Was it like looking at scores? Was it trying random production things? And how has that changed? And what does that kind of practice process or learning process look like now? I think in college, it was a lot more kind of kind of two things, either like following you know, the courses that I was taking and kind of like looking at, at the, the kind of things that we were learning. Like, you know, if we were doing a course on like CounterPoint, like I would read CounterPoint books and I would like listen to a bunch of old, you know, music and pick it apart and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, a, a bunch of like, you know, courses that were kind of focused, studied on, on, you know, here's music from these regions of Africa, you know, li- listening to both like, you know, older traditional music and like modern pop music that was inspired by the older traditional music, like things like that. I love to, to delve into inspirations. So like now sort of the modern approach to that for me is like looking at all of my favorite music and kind of figuring out where it came from, right? Like, hey, I really loved these game scores from the late 90s or whatever. Like, what were they listening to? What were their inspirations? And just starting to like dig deep into those and, and kind of finding like, what was the pop music? What was the classical music that they were listening to? You know, the various parts of the world, like all these things that kind of went into influence their sounds or like, you know, digging into like what instruments were they using? Because like all of like Super Nintendo PS1 era games were like sampling things from other synthesizers, you know, it's like, what was, what was the hardware they were using to get those, you know, source sounds and all that stuff. So <laughs> a lot of it is kind of like digging into like 
what inspires me and what inspired them and kind of like figure out like, you know, what's the deal with <laughs> how I instinctually write music because of all the things that I've been inspired by. Mm, that's cool. That's really cool. You're just kind of branching from thing to thing based on your inspiration. That's lovely. Yeah. It's like, it's always like, what does a project afford me in terms of exploring my my inspirations you know with with chicory you know it was a game that i came out a couple months ago a lot of that was like i've wanted to write something kind of jrpg-ish forever and i've not had the opportunity until now so it was kind of like exploring those those inspirations for me and figuring out you know how do i do my version of that in a modern era (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> with the tools that I have available to me. And the same thing for, for other games of like realizing, oh, I can do a big open world fishing game. You know, that's another thing that I'm working on of like, you know, what are other things that have inspired me in the past that I can bring to this to kind of figure out what is the authentic Lena version of these scores that I that I want to bring to life. And not, not necessarily like, trying to emulate someone else specifically, but like, how do I continue to evolve my style through the things that sparked that initial like creative inspiration for me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned the authentic Lena version because all your stuff does sound like you, which is awesome. And I hear a lot of up and coming composers like ask the question kind of broadly, how do I find my sound? How do I find my style? What do you say to them when they ask something like that? God, it's hard. <laughs> It's, it's difficult for me to give specific advice because a lot of it is through anecdotes. So like, you know, this is how I figured it out. It's not going to be the same for you, but maybe you can take some inspiration for, for what I went through to, to figure that out for yourself. <laughs> and um, I think a lot of it for me was like figuring out what were the things that I didn't want to write? <laughs> and, you know, some of it was through trial and error, right? Of like, when I was just getting out of college, like, the gigs that people were getting were very focused around what was in vogue, you know, what was the niche at the time. And so it was like 2006 or so. So like, you know, Call of Duty Modern Warfare was was like sort of like the it thing and everyone was doing like big orchestral like war game scores. <laughs> so there was a lot of, you know, like a lot of brass, a lot of Hollywood inspirations and all this stuff. And I was like, well, I guess I guess I got to do something like this to, to get a job. So I started writing some of that kind of stuff. And I was just like, this kind of sucks. I don't like this. <laughs> I don't like anything that I'm writing. And I started like experimenting with other things and like finding sounds that I liked better than what I felt like I had to write. And I was like, this is great. This is cool. <laughs> but then realizing that no one was looking for those sounds. So it kind of, it became this like push and pull between like, what do I really want to write and what are people looking for? And a lot of that, I think, is why it kind of took a while for for me to find the right projects that like really gelled with it. Cause it really took someone reaching out to me and being like, I want what you do for me to like, at least get into the conversation to influence things in a direction that I wanted to go. Cause if I was, if I was just going to be like, you know, a career composer that was kind of being the jack of all trades and like going around being like, you know, Oh, you need a FPS score that has like some subtle, like whatever vibes, you know, I, what I wrote would have been drastically different from what I ended up focusing on because I was being kind of picky and just like, <laughs> you know, I want to write what I want to write and trying to find that that voice for myself. 
So like it's it's hard because a lot of these people that are asking these questions, like they're young, they're trying to establish themselves in the composition games space, and it's hard to 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 stick out and also be the perfect person for a job, you know? <laughs> it's it's one of the hardest things in the world, I feel, because to get a job, you kind of have to be exactly the person that a director or whoever is is making these decisions is 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 hoping for and a lot of the time like you know especially with larger budget things like they can afford to hire exactly who they want you know so like i look at you know something like the latest ratchet and clank game there was like an anecdote on the playstation blog when they're talking about like looking for a composer they're like we're sony we have a lot of money <laughs> we really want to hire a composer that basically sounds like mark mothersbaugh and so they're like well why don't we hire mark mothersbaugh and so they did you know and it's like one of those things of just like you know <laughs> a lot of these big companies like if they know someone that they want to hire they're just going to hire that person and so a lot of that discovery of, of who you want to be as a composer kind of falls to the smaller budget projects of like the indie stuff and, you know, the things where like you're not going to see like a huge return unless you get like something like Celeste that just kind of like accidentally breaks out, you know. So you, it's, it's, it's the hardest thing for me to recommend like exactly what to do while also being like very hireable at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you hit on something really important with the Mark Mothersbaugh story, especially because a lot of people will think like, oh, I'm going to try and sound exactly like X composer. But when it comes down to it, they're not going to hide the imitation. Exactly, exactly. And so like, you know, the thing that I learned about <laughs> being me, you know, being the composer me was I just did my music, I put out solo albums, like I did, you know, an EP of just like, here's, here's the kind of weird electronic music that I want to write. And I put it out there. And then I got to the Celeste team. And they're like, that's what we want for our game. And it was so it wasn't about me pitching, like, I want to be the composer for your game. It was like, we like your music. We don't even care that you did Guild Wars, because that's not the sound we're going for, you know, <laughs> come work for us, you know, for for this weird platformer that we're doing. And so it was like, okay, yeah, no, cool. You know, this can be like the next stuff that I'm taking. But it was because I put out what I wanted to do as a solo album and kind of it got out there. And same thing for both Minecraft and Sackboy, A Big Adventure. Both of those projects came to me because I put out my solo album, One Knowing, and that kind of explored like a different you know, side of, of my composition that I hadn't put out there before that wasn't Celeste necessarily, you know, it still, you know, sounded like me, but it was very much like the more ambient side of things. And there's some like vocal stuff in there. And so I was able to put that out because I just needed a break from post Celeste stuff. And so then that brought even more gigs in. And so it was like, yeah, just this continuation of like balancing between finding projects that gel with what you do versus just doing your own albums, you know, just kind of putting yourself out there of like, this is what I want to write. And, you know, I think a lot of composers have sort of found a lot of success through just putting out their own albums and just kind of being out there and discoverable in a way. Yeah, I think there's a huge nugget in there in that even between things, you're putting stuff out. You weren't just sitting on your hands saying like, well, someone hire me, otherwise I'm not making music. You're still making stuff. And I think that's hugely important because you're getting practice in. People could hear different styles about you. And that's that's amazing. So I'm, I'm curious now, we're going to ask some more broad questions as we as we get to closer to the end. I'm wondering, is there anything that you think about all the time, but never talk about? Could be career related or not. <laughs> oh, goodness. 
This is a difficult question. Because <laughs> I tend to just kind of spew thoughts out there on Twitter constantly. So I'm just kind of like... <laughs> <laughs> I think that's cool in and of itself where you share a lot about your process online or your thoughts or your kind of philosophy. Is there something kind of core to that philosophy that you'd... You know, let's say someone asks you a really broad question, like, how do I become a video game composer? Is there one core piece of advice that maybe other people aren't giving that you like to impart to up-and-coming composers? I don't know. Like it's it's a weird thing where I feel like I've been asked that question enough times in interviews that I've like <laughs> I think I've explored you know at the front of my head those answers <laughs> at the time you know there there's I'm just I'm just like <laughs> I'm looking around my room of like just like <laughs> what what are all the weird things that I've got here they don't actually yell about all the time <laughs> but. Uh, I like to build Gumpa. I don't know. Like <laughs> that's one thing. Like I, I think I've shared some photos on Twitter of like the, the little models that I've built. I collect a lot of like little robots and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I don't think that contributes to to my composition at all or or finding gigs. But yeah, no. Like I, I love designs. I like like mm-hmm. character design. Like things things of that nature of like aesthetics because like you know my my wife is an artist she does amazing cool like like hybrid like technology and 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 fashion design kind of things and you know that really like kind of drew me to her her artwork and got you know to 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 meet in the first place and so like i have a huge appreciation for like really interesting just kind of like mechanical design clothing design things things that kind of play with aesthetics in a visual way which doesn't necessarily like influence my day-to-day career in any way because like everything that I do is is very you know music focused is very audio and I I would love to have more of a visual kind of component to the kind of stuff that I do but it's like not one of my strong suits of like you know I don't do a lot of like visual art myself anymore and so so I kind of like have mostly kind of strayed towards being like cultivator of just kind of like aesthetics and and kind of finding finding cool things that kind of appeal to me in like collecting little like robot toys or or gunpla or things that kind of like have a cool design to them and you know satisfying colors and and that sort of thing to really just kind of <laughs> put together just kind of a visual aesthetic that's one little fun thing that I don't think I I rant about a lot because it's hard to like to like out of context just like talk about that stuff because it's just like things that fill my brain downtime of just like ooh this is this is cool you know it's kind of going down this like rabbit hole of like looking at twitter and like looking through (laughs) you know artists and what they retweet and all that kind of stuff I like that. That's really cool. And it's good to have those hobbies because there's an outside perspective of composers do nothing but music all day, every day (laughs) from like noon to midnight nonstop. And I don't think that's necessarily true. And it brings to light that, yes, for you especially, you have other things going on. You know, you're not just like a one dimensional person. And that's great to share with people. And, you know, speaking of that downtime, it could be career related or it could be not. But nowadays, what are you focused on learning or getting better at? Mm. I think like especially apart from professional stuff like something that I've been trying to to get better at is is cooking because uh. it's like the one thing that I've kind of learned to enjoy doing that I can't just be like I'm gonna try to make this my profession you know because <laughs> <laughs> every other like hobby that I've that I've come across has kind of been like 
you know, how do I, it's, and, you know, it's the, the perpetual American trouble of, like, uh-huh. you know, figuring out how you make money off of things. <laughs> so, like, writing, you know, I was like, well, I'm going to release a novel and, you know, <laughs> things like that, like design, like, I have to make games and sell those games. Music, well, I'm a composer now. So, like, all those things, it's, it's hard to detach yourself from, like, your value as, as something that you create. Whereas, like, cooking food well is something that benefits myself and my wife and that's that's it you know and that's fine like that's you know one of those things where like i don't feel like i need to make food for a living <laughs> that's a career path that is completely alien to me which is fantastic i am completely okay with that and so like just learning how to make my own made from scratch teriyaki sauce or you know whatever it is like just kind of you know learning how to make the dishes that I enjoy a lot that I've you know eaten at restaurants and things it's it's hard to cook every single day just because of mm-hmm. busyness but yeah just uh cooking cooking a good meal I think is <laughs> something that's brought me a lot of joy especially like with the the forced being at home kind of mm-hmm. <laughs> mentality yeah it's very wholesome yeah <laughs> <laughs> All right. A second to last question before we wrap up and get into, you know, where people can find you and all that good stuff. When you first started and you can define that starting point anywhere, it could be when you're five years old, it could be in college, whatever starting point you want. How did you define success and how has that changed over time and how do you define it now? I think it's kind of something that's stayed with me for a good portion of my life is I, I consider something a success if I share it with someone and get a good reaction. <laughs> and so, you know, when I was a kid, you know, it was very much like, you know, my parents were my audience because I didn't have a lot of, you know, friends. <laughs> and so I would share something with my parents and they'd be like, oh, cool. You know, and my dad was a composer. So like, you know, I would share music with him and, and it felt like a genuine connection of like he kind of understood what I was doing and, you know, we could connect in that way. Once I did actually have more friends, like I would kind of share music with them and be like, oh, cool. You know, like just that kind of like that recognition of like, oh, you did something cool. Like, and I, I'm enjoying this thing. And I think that's that's still kind of like the main like thing that drives me is being able to share that stuff and seeing how people react to things in a positive way. <laughs> and so like, you know, that's, that's kind of like my new ritual, like, you know, since since, you know, working on like Guild Wars 2 and and delivering content through like live updates and stuff for that game, or like writing a piece of music and having it be in an update, or, you know, releasing Celeste or releasing Chicory, like I love to just kind of watch live streamers, people playing through the games and just like seeing the reaction to it. Like I love that is that is kind of like the validation to me is like, seeing someone discover something that I've done for the first time. And it's just it's just a really cool thing that you can have those sorts of interactions with people in an indirect way of like, you know, you created something and now they're discovering it for themselves. And it's 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 just such a cool like serotonin rush for me. I'm just like, yeah, cool. Yeah, that's that's a, a good driving force, like a good reason to keep making stuff. I love it. Yeah. And it's definitely something that's like helped combat a lot of like imposter syndrome issues mm-hmm. that I like struggle with and, and all this stuff of like you know it's, it's hard to feel 100% satisfied with <laughs> everything that I've that I've done but having those little check-ins of seeing someone acknowledge your work that's what keeps me going 
Lovely. Now, last question. Where can people find you? Any sorts of things you want to share, too? <laughs> well, I am, unfortunately, on Twitter a lot, at Karain, <laughs> K-U-R-A-I-N-E. I'm also on Instagram, barely. I don't really post a lot of <laughs> content there anymore, but I do like occasional story updates and stuff. But I am technically on there. My online portfolio is lena.fyi. That's where everything that I've released will be in a list with cover art and all that stuff. <laughs> we can click links and check it out. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. It's been a lot of really good thought-provoking questions. <laughs> That's the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening as always. And considering I work in the world of video game, music, and sound, and so many people are always asking me how they break into that field, I have a newsletter set up for you. So if you want to learn how to make music and sound effects for video games and actually be paid to do it, just go to bit.ly forward slash soundbizpod, sound B-I-Z pod. And that newsletter will set you up with two free courses and a bunch of free ebooks and even sound effects that'll get you set up and teach you how to work in the world of video game music and sound. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. And if you're looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to, this podcast is actually a part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. So if you want to check those out, hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.